That's why when a person comes to Christ, we said last week, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now, in what ways does he become a new creation? You see, God does not want us to remain like we were before we were saved. God does not want us to continue on the way we were before we were saved. We're supposed to be a new person. How do we do this? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, first of all, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is reasonable. And then this next phrase now, get this. This is what happens to, this is what is supposed to happen to our conscience. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your what? New thought pattern. That ye may prove that that which is of God is good and acceptable and perfect. He said there should be a change in your life. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and I told you, you get a new input, not from your five senses now, but from the Word of God and the Spirit of God bringing truth into your heart. How many of you can remember how God changed convictions in your life after you were saved? Can anyone think of some conviction that was changed in your life when you came to Jesus Christ that's just totally different from what it was back then? Your speech changed. In what way? You used to curse, and all of a sudden, why did you quit cursing? I mean, did your, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your mouth, or your fingers tell you that? Your heart. The entrance of His Word gives light, and the Spirit of God says, don't do that anymore. That was not from the five senses. That was from the Spirit of God convicting that swearing was no good. Anyone else have some real changes? Okay, curse, another, yeah, that's another form of cursing, yeah. And by the way, you know, we, uh, may I just encourage you to, to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to work on your standard in that area? You know, there are a lot of people who will say, gosh darn, that's just a mild form of the worst term. Other people say, oh geez, what do you think that is? They're not talking about Velveeta. That's a shortened form for Jesus, taking the Lord's name in vain. And there are a lot of these little slang phrases that we take today as a replacement for old swear words. Well, the Holy Spirit even wants us to raise us above that. He says, let your yes be yes and your no, no, because anything else beyond that is sin. Now, when the Holy Spirit brings that into your heart, he'll begin to raise that standard up even higher. See, there are a lot of things I didn't know. I had a temper and I used to think that fighting was the only way to take care of things. And I remember how the Holy Spirit just convicted me so terribly inside where when I knew I could have whipped the socks off of someone, I had just had to sit there and laugh and say, you know, I can't even, I can't even swing at you anymore. God has convicted me. That's wrong. I can't do that anymore. You know, just that one little thought, there was a fellow who went to Bible college with us who went up into Alaska in the Aleutian Islands, and he was on a boat, would go from island to island and do mechanical work on the boats for people and witness to them at the same time as a missionary. And he said, he came back and later on he said, more men were won to Jesus Christ as they watched him repair engines when he would hit his thumb or pinch his hand and he'd say, oh, praise God. There it goes again. Bless the Lord. He said they would just sit there in amazement. Why isn't he cussing up a blue streak? And then he'd get a chance to witness to him. The Lord convicted me of that and I'm just thankfully took that old foul language away. See, what I'm saying is this is the thing that God begins to do in our lives when we are conformed. We begin to develop new standards and new convictions. Now, convictions are what cause you, causes your conscience to begin to function in a godly way. The renewing of your mind. Before a person gets saved, a lot of times they have tremendous anger in their heart. And the Holy Spirit convicts them of that anger. And they begin to repent of that anger and command that anger to loose them in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they know that that's not biblically sound. That's not what God wants them to do. Okay, and the only problem, Scripture says if we can't control our passions and our desires, that we're like a city with the walls broken down, totally defenseless. So if, if we don't come to the place as Christians where we have, by the Spirit of God convicting us of it, we have gotten rid of that old anger, gotten rid of the old pathway of lying, gotten rid of the old ways of cursing, we're just going to be, our walls are down and we're open to the attack of the enemy all the time. And that's why it says we have to be careful of our emotions. I told you our intellect, sensibility will be involved in all of our decisions and the will stands up against it. And then it's the emotions that will knock it down a lot of time. And once we have convictions, we don't allow our emotions to override the convictions. You'll find a lot of Christians who are walking in defeat because they know what they ought to do. But when they get into an emotional situation... The emotions sweep away their will and they do that which they know they ought not to do. 
Now, don't think that they're alone in that because Paul the Apostle says, that which I would do, I do not. That which I would not do, that I do. Who's going to deliver me? And he said, I thank God Jesus Christ can deliver me from these things. What he was saying is, there are things that I know I ought not. How many of you know our problem is not what we don't know as much as it is what we know and don't do? I mean, we know enough right now that uh, we ought to be able to evangelize the whole world with just what we know. It's just that we aren't doing what we know we ought to do. What happens? We get under a pressure situation. I can't tell you how many times people that come to this altar, I counsel with them, oh, this past week such and such happened and I just blew my cork and I really let it rip and I had to go back and say, oh, please forgive me. Sometimes the same people will be in that same situation and you think, how long before finally one of these days you're going to say those emotions are not going to rule my life anymore. I'm going to be ruled by the Spirit of God. If you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires, the passions, the ambitions of the flesh. You see, when the Spirit comes in and takes control, what happens? You begin to establish convictions. That's why it's so important that we have a sanctified, a sanctified conscience. We've been talking about different types of consciences here. Last week we talked about several of them. Tonight I want to finish them up. Types of consciences in the scriptures. An awakened conscience, a seared conscience, purged conscience, and then we ended up last week with a pure conscience. Tonight I want to talk to you about a weak conscience. 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verses 5 through 7. Paul the Apostle talking to the Corinthian church, which was a carnal church. They were still growing in the Lord. There are a lot of things they were allowing to have happen they, they should not have had to happen. It says, For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are God, be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God. Now he was saying, in the world they have a lot of gods. How many of you know in uh, India they have thousands and thousands of gods? I mean, every place you turn, there's different idols. And if they don't have enough, they'll think up a new one and set it up and, and worship that idol. That's what he's saying. He says, in the world, there's just all kinds of gods. But to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are all things, and, and we by Him. In other words, He created all things, and we're even created by Him, and we're in Him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Now, everybody doesn't know that there's just one God. For some, with conscience of the idol unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is, de is defiled. What Paul is saying here, there are some people, if they eat something that's been offered to an idol, and they find out that it was offered to an idol, they think that idols are alive, and so they have opened themselves up to that idol. Opened themselves up to that God when they eat it. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. He said, now there are weak Christians who when they partake of something and they find out it's been offered idols, they have real problems with that. It really disturbs them. Now they're weak. He said, now if you don't have that problem, don't just despise those that do. And he goes on here, For if any man see that which hath knowledge sit at meat in an idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered idols? He said, now if you have this bold conscience, and you don't have it, you know, you know that's just plain old food, and those idols are nothing, they're just, they're just pieces of wood and gold and silver, and then you walk into this temple to sit down and start eating some of this food, and a weaker Christian sees you do this, and he goes in because he's weaker, he gets defiled and he begins to worship those gods because he's eating the food that comes from them. Verse 11. Through thy knowledge shall thy, the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Now that's an interesting statement there. For those that say, I'm going to do my own thing. I, I, I don't care what other people think about what I do. It's just between me and God. No, 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 no. That's not true. See, this is one of the greatest fallacies of the Reformation Church's theology. Their theology is all things in what? All things in moderation. Drink in moderation, smoke in moderation, dance in moderation, carouse in moderation. Whatever you do, just as long as it doesn't get a hold of you and, and run clear down to the ground. 
Or you see, that doesn't, that doesn't grab it as far as Paul is concerned. He said it has nothing to do with what you and I have the freedom or the liberty to do. We have to do it and realize that we can become a stumbling block to a weaker brother. And so we have to be sensitive to that. And if we go ahead and do those things and a weaker brother is drawn away from Christ, we have to answer to God for that. He says, now you are not considering with love your weaker brother. You sin not just against your brother, you're actually sinning against Christ. What did Jesus say in the book of Matthew? He said, if you cause a weaker brother to stumble or a little one to stumble, it's better for you that a millstone were hanged around your neck and you be cast in the depth of the sea. Now, have you ever tried to picture like down there in the Bahamas somewhere, I understand there's a place where it's 10, 12 miles deep. He said it's actually better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and dropped into that deepest part of the, of the ocean than to cause a, a weaker brother or sister to stumble. I don't know about you, but that would put some starch in my convictions. I would no longer go around saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, God. You just show me what I can do, and I don't care what that fellow over there thinks. I mean, if he's, if he's just a, a little weakling, that's his problem. Paul said, no, 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 no. Wherefore, verse 13, if meat make my brother to offend, I will... He didn't say don't ever eat meat. He said if it was to cause... Now, what he was talking about, the meat that was sold at the temples that had been offered to idols. And again, that was the prime beef, the very finest. They wouldn't have any blemished animal at all, the finest animal. He said that meat is the best you can buy on the market. But if eating that caused a weaker brother to stumble, I would, I'd be a vegetarian the rest of my life. Not because I couldn't eat the meat, not because I don't like the meat, but I just don't want a weaker brother to stumble. I'll eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend, lest I cause my brother to stumble and fall, lest I cause him spiritual defeat. Then look back in Romans, the 14th chapter. Paul says the same thing to the church of Rome. And I want you to be able to study this later on more in detail. But starting with the 12th verse of the 14th chapter. He says, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Now he's talking to Christians here, by the way. We're going to give an account of ourselves to God, he said. So let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Living Bible says that no man lets his brother see you do something that he thinks is wrong. Don't let your brother see you doing something that he thinks is wrong. Not that you think is wrong, not that God thinks is wrong, but that he thinks is wrong. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him which esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul says there's nothing unclean on this earth. God made all things to be eaten, all things to be enjoyed. But he said, we can't just have the freedom to go ahead and do it. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace or harmony and things wherewith one may edify another. I like what the Living Bible says in this next phrase. Don't undo the work of God for a chunk of meat. For meat, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. In other words, if he causes offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or made weak. The Living Bible says the right thing to do is to quit eating meat or drinking wine or doing anything else that offends your brother or makes him sin by, or by causing resentment in his heart. If he even resents us for it. Then verse 22, Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. Isn't that incredible? Happy is the man who does not sin by doing what he knows is right. Oh, I know that it's not wrong as far as God is concerned. Meat, they eat meat, eat that meat. That's good meat. I mean, I can get that for cheaper than what I can get down the market. And the market meat on the market is only commercial meat. And this is prime meat. What's the matter with you guys around here with all your weak consciences? Get out of my life. I'm going to go ahead. No, no, no. He says, don't do that. Don't sin by doing what you know is right. 
just because you want to do it. Paul says you're further than not to eat anything. Verse 1 of chapter 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak not, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. He uses the example of Jesus Christ when he's saying there are those with a strong conscience and those with a weak conscience. He said Jesus Christ could have done differently than he did. He could have called 10,000 angels and destroyed the world and have them set him free. But he didn't because he knew that what he had to do was best for the future church. And he gave himself to the joy that was before him and endured the cross realized he was he is dying out to himself that he might fulfill God's purpose for the church. The word of God says you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Paul says I am crucified with Christ nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If Christ lives in me then I am to live as Christ lived. Not to myself but that others may see Jesus Christ in me by the love that I show to them. So we're talking here about a weak conscience. There are going to be people who have convictions that you may think, well, that's very juvenile. Why don't you grow up? But you can injure them. It's better that slowly they grow and they become strengthened. I can remember, for example, when my sister became a brand new Christian. How many of you know that the, the tendency of, of the human heart is to be like a pendulum? When we were in sin, we were way over there serving the devil with everything we had. So when we get saved, we go clear over against the other wall and get as far away from it as we possibly can. My sister took off every bit of makeup she had. She quit. I mean, the Lord delivered her from her cussing and her smoking and her drinking and all the rest of it and her temper and all that stuff. But she was clear over here and, and she just wouldn't, didn't even like to be around non-Christians in the family. If they started drinking and smoking in the house and playing cards and everything, she'd want to leave. Well, they began to think, boy, she's awful uppity. Good night, nurse. What's with her? You know, someone said, she's just gone nuts over religion. I mean, she's just gone clear up against the other wall. And she said later on, the Lord began to show her that the sin was not in the makeup, but it was the motivation of her heart. And slowly but surely, I saw a little bit of rouge come on and just a little, little tiny bit of lipstick. And, and, you know, after probably 10 or 15 years of being a Christian, I saw a little clip-on earring again. And what happened? I mean, are these things sin? No, they weren't sin as such. But to her, they were because she went, she didn't want, and I thank God, she just wanted to get so far away from what she was, and I'd rather have her over here trying to find out where she belongs than to have her right over here trying to find out where how much further she had to get away. Most, I mean, many people have been raised in the church a lot of times will come right down here and walk right along the edge and say, how close can I get to being in the world and still be called a Christian? But she just, why? Jesus said, he that is forgiven much loveth much. And then the Spirit of God began to establish standards for her that she could live with according to the Word of God. Now I want to ask you, where is your standard tonight? What, does your, what has your conscience established in your heart? What can you do? And even if you can do certain things, are you willing to give those things up for those around you lest you become a stumbling block to them? I've told you before, and some of you haven't heard this, but there were years ago when I was ministering to a family and the, the parents had were social drinkers. And in their home, they had this little wine closet and they had the different types of wine and some booze and so forth. And one time when we got to talking, it, that subject came up. And I said, I know that up till now you've not had a conviction against that, but do you realize what that can do in, in causing others to stumble? The immediate reaction of the husband was, that's their problem. It doesn't hurt me. I've done it all my life. I know when to start. I know when to quit. Tough. I said, well, what about your family? Well, they've been around it all their lives. They, need to, they, they ought to know how to take care of it. They ought to know how to handle it. I said, what if they can't? Well, then that's their problem. It wasn't six, nine, maybe 12 months later that they found out their son was almost an alcoholic, stealing the booze out of the house and going out with his buddies and drinking. And he got into all kinds of problems with drugs and alcohol and everything else. As I talked to this man later, as he moved all, took all the stuff out of his house, he said, I'm beginning to see that this is wrong to have this in the house for my children. 
There are some people that don't have a problem with these things, and there's others. I, I can give you an example that I can't forget, and I've shared it with you before, but it bears repeating, about a group that went over, of charismatics, that went over to Israel, and some of the spiritual leaders over there who were saying that they wanted to be free, and they were not in bondage, and they were not legalistic, would order wine with all their meals. Well, one man that went with them on that trip, unbeknownst to them, was a reformed alcoholic. He had been an alcoholic for many, many years, had accepted Christ, and had been off the wagon now for about, I guess, nine months to a year. He went down to the dining hall, and they saw him come in, and a couple of the leaders said, come on over here and sit down with us. Here, have a glass of wine. He said, no, thank you. I really don't know. Oh, come on. Now, don't be legalistic about it. Here, have a little wine. End result was the man came back from that trip an alcoholic was going back into it. Now you see, as far as these leaders are concerned, if you tried to tell them that it wasn't right, we're not legalistic. We're not in bondage anymore. Our consciences are strong. We know we can do this and it's not going to hurt us. But they didn't consider the weaker brother. Now, let me tell you something. They sinned against Christ. They caused a weaker brother to stumble because of their freedom. This is not legalism. This is not bondage. Paul calls it love. For love's sake, for love of Christ and for love of the brethren, if that eating that or drinking that or anything else causes them to fall, how not now? Now he says, now don't you with a weak conscience despise those with a strong conscience, and don't you, I mean, uh, criticize those with a strong conscience, don't you with a strong conscience criticize or put down those with a weak conscience? We love each other and establish and encourage each other where we find each other. Walk in love in the Lord. That's the weak conscience. The next one is a defiled conscience found in Titus, the first chapter. Verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. What's he saying here? You find a very, very pure, spirit-filled person and something comes up that's suggestive. In many cases, they just go right on by them because they're not even plugged into that anymore. But you say something that even hints to something that is suggestive around a person whose conscience and mind is defiled and immediately the wheels of impurity and immorality and unrighteousness and filth begin to operate and their imagination begins to build this up and they can respond very quickly with some degrading remark or some filthy joke or laugh about something. He's saying that when your mind is defiled and your conscience is defiled, you'll conjure up all sorts of wickednesses. I, now, I can give you a very, very personal example. Before I became a Christian, I told you that I had the most horrible vocabulary and most rotten repertoire of jokes. That when anybody would make a statement, we'd be standing there talking about something and somebody would make a statement about something totally unrelated, but that one word would hit my mind and out would come a filthy joke. I'd say, oh, did you hear this? Blah, 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 out would come this filthy joke. Now that's what I was talking about, becoming defiled. Your very thought pattern, everything that comes to you, you try to run it into a channel of defilement and of filth and immorality and all this stuff. Your, your mind becomes polluted that way. But under the pure, all things are pure. He's talking about your conscience being defiled. In other words, it's where you begin to call right wrong and wrong right. What God says is sin, you say is fun. That's a defiled conscience. And you see, that's why you and I need to be very, very patient when we see people in the world who every other word has filthy words coming out of their mouth. Where they're always saying corrupted, filthy thoughts. They can't help themselves. They're the ones that need Christ. You see, their very conscience is defiled. They can't help themselves. You know, I, many times I thought, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I thinking these things? Why am I acting? I know better than this. I shouldn't be doing this. My conscience was still there when I was unsaved, but I didn't know what to do about it. I found out that Jesus Christ could set me free. Man, I mean to tell you, I went for it like a hog goes for a mud hole. I said, man, that's where I want to be. In Jesus, be set free. Uh, when we talk about a conscience, a, a conviction, I just looked in the dictionary out of curiosity to find out. It says a conviction 
is a firm belief, a belief of certainty and assurance, a state of being convinced. And it says a person of conviction usually makes independent judgments. Not based on what you think, not based on what is most popular, what is most profitable, what is not based upon what is the easiest. But a person with convictions always makes independent judgment based upon a firm foundation. If you're a person of convictions, you couldn't care less what the rest of the world is saying. What does the word say? And when all the rest of them say, well, I just don't think that that's right. Well, but the word says. Yes, but I know that, but you can't apply that today. I can always apply it because the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and the man of God is thoroughly furnished unto all good works. From now until Jesus comes, it's all that I need. Yeah, but we're living in a different generation. Yes, it's just, it's not new. It's not new things. It's just old sin under a, with a new garment on it. And here he's talking about a defiled conscience. God delivers from defiled consciences. Now, a witnessing conscience, Romans 2, beginning with verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law, who's that? Gentiles. He was talking here about God judging all mankind here, but he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. That's for the Jews. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written where? In their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, or their conscience accusing them. God placed within their hearts this awareness, accusing them and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or excusing. This conscience that's inside of them, even when they don't have the law. I want to tell you something. I didn't have the law when I was a young person. I went to Sunday school when I was a little tiny kid and learned a few principles. I think that was something that gnawed away at me also. But there is a conscience within every one of us, and we will either accuse ourselves and be under conviction and do something about it, or we'll excuse ourselves. And that's why I say a person can have a conscience and have a sliding scale of conviction. If you say, I will never allow this to happen, and then it happens, you've got a choice now. You either accuse yourself or you excuse yourself. If you say, no, I will not have that happen in my life. Lord, forgive me. I reestablish that principle. It stays there. If you do it over and over again before long, you say, well, I'll bring it down a little bit. I'll bring it down a little bit lower. I'll bring it down a little bit lower. And wherever you set that place that you're, you're comfortable with, it, that's where it'll stay. But your conscience will witness to you. That's why when you and I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone, the Holy Spirit comes and hits them with the light of the truth of the word and exposes them that they're a sinner. You know, that's why when I'm preaching the gospel, I remember what happened to me the night I was saved. That preacher didn't know me from Adam. I came in off the streets and I, can, I thought he was standing right where Renee is, pointing his finger right at my nose. And I knew he wasn't. He was clear up in the front. It's like someone said recently, no, I'm not going to come to your church because every time I do, you tell the pastor all about me. And so he just lambasts me when I get there. And they don't say a word to me. I mean, the Holy Ghost is convicting them of their sin. See, the Spirit of God, wham, 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 was telling me I was lost and I needed to be saved. The Holy Spirit was witnessing through me, showing me here's where you are and here's where the Word of God wants you to be and you're lost and you need to be saved. Thank God he gives you. know, I can preach to my dog until I'm blue in the face and the dog just lay there like, doesn't feel the least bit of conviction. But our conscience witnesses to us. Then, then thank God there's a the good conscience. 1 Timothy 1. Beginning with the 18th verse. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee. Thou by them, by these prophecies, mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, holding faith, hang on to what you've got, hang on to the truth you know, and walk in it so you can have a good conscience, 
which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Because it's serious, it's important. When you and I come to faith, that we keep a good conscience. If we don't, we can come to shipwreck. These men came to shipwreck because they moved away from the faith that they had been taught and compromised. Had to pay the price. Then in 1 Peter 3.16, let me read uh, first. Uh, verse 14 first, but if, but and if you suffer for righteousness sake, righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror or intimidation, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Whereas they speak evil of you as, as of evil doers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Greek word there is to be shamed down or disgraced. They might be disgraced because you have a good conscience and you're walking uprightly before God. He said the world would make all kinds of accusations against you. Then quickly, the last one is a satisfied conscience. 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. That means whatsoever is sold in the, in the marketplace. You have the marketplace, whatever they sell you, eat, uh, eat it and ask no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, talk about unbelievers, and ye be disposed to go, in other words, you're free to go and you feel like you should go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? If I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. He's saying when you go somewhere, if someone comes and says, did you know that this food is offered to an idol? And in saying that, he's saying, you shouldn't eat that as a Christian. He says, then don't eat it. And he said, don't ask any questions. So they bring it out, put it on the table. Boy, that just looks delicious, wonderful. I mean, just praise the Lord. As long as no one says anything to you, as far as being offered to an idol, Paul says, go ahead and eat it. If someone shows that they're having a real problem with that, don't eat it. Why? For love's sake. How many of you know we need to ask the Lord to constantly sensitize our consciences? Make you more sensitive. Wait, there's going to be a, a, a list of, of good things that the Bible talks about for God's people. And the first one was to draw near to God. We talked about doing it with a clear, with a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience. And we talked about the conscience being that mechanism that God placed within man through his self-awareness, where we establish standards either receiving signals from the flesh or from the intellect or from the spirit. When we've been quickened by the Spirit of God, we receive a new input of information to cause us to establish standards that are more Christ-like. And that's why the Scripture says that there's all different types of consciences that we talked about. Awakened conscience, seared, purged, pure, a weak conscience, a defiled conscience a witnessing conscience that witnesses to us, having a good conscience, having a satisfied conscience. But it's good for man to draw nigh to God. Now, being involved, what something that's involved in drawing near to God is the second thing that the Scripture talks about that is good for God's people. And how many of you know that if we'll do what's good for us, we will respond to the Word of God? And the Word of God, if He tells us it's good to draw near to Him, how many of you know it's bad for us not to draw near to Him? The second thing is, the Scripture says that it's good for, for God's people to give thanks and praise to the Lord. We've talked a lot about praise and thanks, but I want to just share a few things with you tonight. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter with me, please. Beginning with verse 9, Paul was talking to the church of Corinth concerning their attitudes. One of the problems that he had within the Corinthian church was that which took place in the Old Testament also. And Paul says, hey, 
learned something from the Old Testament. God judged the children of Israel when they complained and when they murmured about their circumstances of life. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough meat. We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. Why doesn't God hear? Why does God do this? Why is on a murmur, 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 and the word of God says that God judged them for? The scripture says the Old Testament was written for our admonition to see how God responds to man and how man is to respond to God. And when we don't do it the proper way, what the end result is. The ninth verse says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Many of them in the Old Testament murmured to God because things weren't right. Give me an example of something they murmured about in the Old Testament. Didn't have enough water. When, tell, name one time when, when God really judged them suddenly. When they murmured about the fact they didn't have any meat. And then they had meat, and God gave them the desire of their heart. And then what happened? Yes, this, this, but what, in this particular case, when they ate it, when their teeth went into the meat, there was evidently some, some kind of a food poisoning. And they had a sudden plague in their midst. And when the fiery serpents came out and, and bit them, was another time after they had murmured. But when they bit into that meat, the meat, the birds, the, the quail that had come in, they became very, very sick from that because they had murmured against the Lord. And you know, as Christians, we need to be very, very, very careful to see how God responds to our, not our words always, but our attitudes. Again, we have a believer inside of us. We have a mechanism inside of us that we must control. The scripture says God's way is always perfect. He never makes a mistake. Now, if we know that, it means that when Job lost his family and all of his belongings, that God's way was perfect. Do we understand it? No. But it was perfect. In the end, the, the Bible says in the New Testament, remember the end of Job. Not, don't remember all of his persecution. Don't remember all the torment they went through. But remember the end. God vindicated Job's situation. Now, I want to tell you something. Every person that's a Christian is not going to have their life situation vindicated necessarily in this life, but you can mark it down that you will be vindicated. You know, God's Word says if you even give a cup of cold water, God will reward you for it. Maybe not immediately, but God will reward you for it. But when we don't have the things that we think we ought to have, we must be very careful lest we forget that God's way is perfect. And he said, don't be anxious about anything. All you need is enough food in your mouth and all you need is clothing on you and anything beyond that, you don't really need it. But you know, living behind the plush curtain, we have a tendency to grumble and to complain many times when things don't go right. Let me tell you, it is an easy thing to get into a grumbling, negative, complaining mood and when we do, we open the door to the enemy to come in and defeat us and discourage us and also to block the blessings of God in our lives. Now, I know the minute I say that, we tend to say, but you don't know. I've got lots of reasons and excuses for grumbling and murmuring. May I tell you something? No Christian has a right or a reason or a good reason to complain and murmur. He may have reason to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, if it be possible, remove this thing from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He may say, Lord, this thorn in the flesh, would you please remove it? And you may ask three times and God may say no to you. And then you'll be able to say to the Apostle Paul, his grace is sufficient for me. But the word of God here says, Christian, don't let yourself get into the habit or the the, the condition where you begin to murmur and complain about your circumstances. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I, I heard the man who said he used to complain because he didn't have shoes until he met a man who didn't have any feet. We can always find worse circumstances, but even if we can't, when the man, young man was found who was born blind, the disciples came to him and said, who sinned, this young man or his parents? Jesus said, neither one, but for the, what? For the glory of God. How does God get glory out of a man being blind? Well, later he was healed. But what if he weren't healed? 
Well, now, if we've got our program set up, now I'm going to go and do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that, and then suddenly something like that happens to stop it. That's when we tend to get angry because we say, we're going to go do thus and such, and the Word of God says, don't say tomorrow I'm going to go do thus and such. It says, rather, say, the Lord willing, tomorrow I'm going to go do thus and such. And leave all your expectations with God. God, I am your servant. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I just am your servant. You open doors. You close doors. If you want me to go and do this, then you're going to have to touch me in this area. If you don't, then show me what you do want me to do. But I thank you ahead of time that you never make a mistake. I'll tell you, it'll do something for you on the inside. Remember, the doctors don't ask anymore what you've been eating. They ask what's eating you when they find that you've got ulcers. An interesting thing, sheep, I'm told, never, very seldom you ever find a sheep that has an ulcer. Because they totally depend on the shepherd. But the scripture says that we're to give thanks. Let's just look at a few verses. Romans, the first chapter, verse 20 through 22, talks about mankind. Neither were thankful. The phrase in there is neither were thankful. And what the end result of it was. Talking about man knowing God, knowing who he was, but neither praised him as for who he was, never gave him the glory of who he really was. Beginning with verse 20, Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He said every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth, just by what they see around them, can comprehend the fact that there is a creator. The insane man has said there is no God, is what the scripture says in another place. The fool is translated in this version, but the Hebrew says the insane man says there is no God. Bill Bright from Campus Crusade said whenever he hears a person say to him there is no God, I am an atheist and I do not believe in God, he says, I usually ask him, who have you slept with that you should not be sleeping with? What deep moral, immoral thing have you done to bring you to the place where you had to deny God? Because that's why men do it they realize they either have to repent and acknowledge that they've sinned against God or deny that there is a God. And so the insane man says in his heart, there is no God. And it says here, they're without excuse. See, the heathen are without excuse because they know that there is a creator. Because that when they knew God, see, originally men knew of God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but neither, underscore that. That, those three words, neither were thankful. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Now, if you recognize that God made this earth, and just look around at the beauty of the earth. The scripture says here, they didn't glorify him as God, and they weren't thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Now, another word for imaginations became vain in their reasonings. Again, they had to reason their way out of it. You remember in the New Testament, when they came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do these miracles? He said, well, I'll answer for that, that for you if you'll answer one for me. In the ministry of John the Baptist, was it of God or was it of man? Now, the same word, and they reasoned among themselves. Whenever you start getting your, in, your idiot box up here in gear and try to work out something spiritual, you're in trouble. And their answer was, you know, if we say that it was of God... And he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say it's a man, then the crowd will probably stone us. You see, they didn't even have any concern what was right or what was wrong, what was truth and what was a lie. They just simply said, if we say this, we're in trouble. If we say that, we can't answer you. And you see, that's why men, when they come to God's word, and when, when Jesus was in the house and they brought this young man in and and laid him in front of Jesus, dropped him down through the roof, you may remember on the pallet, and, and Jesus said, Be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven. And they all screamed and said, Who does this man think he is? God! Jesus said, Hey, well, cool it, you know. Cool it a little bit here. Which is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or take up thy bed and walk, go on home. And the man jumped up and walked out, and boy, they got angry. Had nothing to do with the truth, had nothing to do with the miracle, but he was not doing what they wanted him to do. And men, when they will not receive God, they begin to try to reason and fantasize things. And it says here, became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became philosophers. Oh, fools. Uh, one one uh, book said that was philosophers. Some call them philosophers. 
Then in verses 24, it says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their bodies between themselves. Verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change that, the natural use into that which was against nature. And then in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, again, one of the problems up back there is they were not thankful. You and I become unthankful and fail to recognize the blessings of God in our daily lives. We're starting down a path that eventually will cause cynicism and indifference and then vain philosophies come into our mind. This is why the Word of God said it's good for a man to praise the Lord. Look at Psalm 92.1. We're going to start talking about that. Now, if you're writing down an outline, I said the second thing is... It's a good thing to give thanks, and here's one of my texts. Psalm 92.1 is the text for this point. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. It's a good thing to do that. It's a bad thing not to do that. I'm going to use the contrary. If it's a good thing, it's a bad thing not to do it. It's like a command. You should be, you ought to be, it's necessary for you as a believer to be worshiping and praising the Lord. Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. The living Bible says, shout with joy before the Lord. Another translation says, make a happy racket. It doesn't upset the Lord when... He hears his children get excited about the blessing of the Lord. You know, it's when the enemy heard the nation of Israel praise the Lord is when they be, became afraid. When they saw that they were praising their God, they, they could sense there was victory in the air and defeat for them. And I want to tell you something. When I'm around some Christians sometimes, I just wonder how they ever see any victory whatsoever. They just are so glum and so sad. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. That means obey Him gladly. What does the Word of God say? Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and they won't be grievous unto you. How many of you know it's possible to obey the Lord and still have a raunchy attitude? How many of you know your children will obey you sometime and at the same time inside, they're, outside they're sitting down, inside they're standing up and gritting their teeth at you? That's why I always said, never correct your children by what they do. Always look at their attitude. Deal with their attitude. I mean, they can be in there putting their toys away and boom, want me to put the toys away and you haven't done a thing for them yet. That's when you need to deal with the attitude where, thank the Lord, I have the opportunity to obey mom and daddy. That's why it says here, serve the Lord with gladness. How many of you really enjoy serving the Lord? How many of you really, how many, how many Christians do you know really enjoy coming to God's, the place where God's church meets every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? There are some people that literally will tell you that that's bondage, that that's legalism. How many of you know that you would feel badly if you were married and your husband or your wife said to you, do I have to sleep with you every night? How about every other week? How about once a month? It isn't that I don't love you. I don't know about you, but there'd be some red flags that'd go up in my mind if my wife would say that to me or my husband would say that to me. Why don't we just see each other once every three weeks from now on, you know, and just you know, cool it a little bit. I want to tell you something. The same thing is true if we're to love each other with the Christ-like love where we're, the Word of God says we're to get together and exhort and rebuke and encourage and witness and testify and praise the Lord and, and declare the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, in the house of the Lord, to get, stand up and give praise to the Lord. Something's wrong when a person starts saying, you know, that church over there, they just expect you to be there every time the door is open. Give me a break. If we love the Lord and we love one another, and I'll tell you something, the ties in my heart to others, Christians, is closer than the blood ties of my family. What's closer? I have a closer relationship and a deeper burden and a deeper longing and for fellowship with others around me who are born-again Christians than I do with my family back, back home. 
I've been there once in the last 18 years. Thank God he gave me a good chance to even witness and testify to them this last time I was there, and I'm still making contact with them. But there is not that closeness that I find between God's people. So I want to be with God's people. I mean, I fellowshiped last night with God's people. I could have said, hey, that does it for this week. I paid my postage stamp. I don't have to go tomorrow night now, see? That isn't the way I've looked at it. Serve the Lord with the gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is what? He's God. How many of you know there are a lot of people that come like they're coming to talk to the old man upstairs? There's not that awareness that He is God. He is magnificent. I mean, there's no words that describe the glory of our God. When I see some people coming into the church, you know, almost irreverent. This is an opportunity for God's people to come in fellowship together and just in one voice lift praise to the Lord. I don't care if the guy next to me is sleeping. I'm going to praise the Lord. I don't care what the circumstances look. I've come before my God and He is the source of everything I am and everything I need. He's God. It's He that made us and not we ourselves. We're His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with drowsiness. And into, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Why? It's good to give thanks unto the Lord. To sing praises to his name. It's not just good for God. I mean, God, God can get along without it, but you and I need to do it. We need to remind ourselves over and over again. What was it David said? Remember the hole from whence thou wast digged. I can't tell you how wonderful it is every once in a while to be sitting around or driving along and to think, Lord, when I think of where you brought me from, the hole you dug me out of, took me out of that little old country town and took me up to St. Paul and, and opened the door for me and gave me opportunity to, to witness for you and to sing and to travel and then gave me a wonderful wife and now a wonderful family and all these wonderful opportunities. Lord, you've just been so good to me. I can't thank you enough for it. You know, that's just as easy as to say, God, I'm really concerned that this ear is not acting right, and I'm really concerned that that, that Bell's palsy never did go away completely, and I'm kind of concerned because I've got a, some real soreness in my right elbow. I mean, I could go on and on and on with that stuff, but forget that. That's going to pass away one of these days. I just thank you that you are my God. You're Jehovah Rapha, you're Jehovah Sidkenu, you're Jehovah Shalom, you're Jehovah Rohi, you're Je all these things. You're my all-sufficiency, and I give you praise and thanks. Enter into his gates, not with grumbling, and into his courts, not with complaining. How many of you know that before you ever come and tell him what your problems are, he already knows them? You know, some people think like, hey God, I'm gonna, I, want, I want to give you some information here. He doesn't need to have any information given to him. He wants us to come and acknowledge who he is, and worship and praise Him, and then follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. Give me this day my daily bread. Lord, you know what my needs are. I'm going to trust you. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I believe you're going to be my strength. This is the day which the Lord hath made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Not because of my circumstances, but because of my relationship with Him. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Uh, it doesn't take much to realize why or how we can praise the Lord if we'll begin to absorb these truths. God wants us to be a thankful people. Psalm 147. Praise ye the Lord, for it's good to sing praises unto our God, for it's pleasant and praise is comely. Now, I want, you to, I want you to show me any place in the Word of God here where it says, sing on tune. Don't sing flat. Sing the words all exactly right. Get the timing right. It doesn't say that, does it? I'm so grateful for that. It says, make a joyful noise, a happy racket to the Lord. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man hears out here, but God looks on the heart. Remember the story oh, I told you some time ago of the man who said that the only difference between the man that smokes that we criticize, we criticize man because we can smell the smoke on his breath, but God smells the bitterness in our heart and the criticism in our heart. 
And he's just as displeased with that, if not more, than the man who happens to have this crutch out here in his hand he's trying to get rid of when we tend to criticize him. God looks on our heart. And he said it's good to sing praises unto our God for it's pleasant and praise is comely. Colossians, the third chapter. Over in the New Testament. Colossians, the third chapter. Verses 15 through 17. Let's start with verse 14. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. What did I tell you that word rule? Let the peace of God act as a judge. Act as judge in your hearts. What does that mean? If the peace of God is not in your heart, immediately stop and say, I'm not going any further until I get the peace back. You start to get anxious and you say, oh, oh, I'm going to judge that. That's anxiety in my heart. No, it's not going to be there. I'm going to go back. Let the peace of God rule in your heart and act like a judge. If you don't have peace, don't go any further until you back out and say, what, where am I getting off course here? The Lord said I'm supposed to have peace in this matter. How many of you know that churches are filled today with people come in that are tense, all wound up, about ready for a nervous breakdown, or about ready to have depression. And it's probably been years since they've ever experienced the peace of God that passes all understanding. Because they've never allowed the peace of God to be the touchstone by which we operate in our daily life. How many of you have ever driven and all of a sudden you start getting all upset because they're not moving fast enough up ahead? Or, oh no, I'm not going to get that parking spot. And, you, and all of a sudden you find yourself tense. You have to stop and say, this is ridiculous. Lord, I rebuke this in the name of Jesus. If I need a parking spot, you'll give me the right one in the right time, and I'm doing the best I can. I thank you, and I just renounce that anxiety, that tension, that pressure. I'm going to just praise you, Lord, and begin to pray in the Spirit, or begin to sing a song of praise to the Lord. What's happened? You've allowed the peace of God, or the absence of it, to become a judge. You say, nope, I'm off base. The peace of God isn't there. You know, some people probably feel, some Christians probably feel very, very upset not understanding why all of a sudden they've got peace in their heart because they don't have it very often. You've heard of the person that worries when they can't remember anything to worry about because they haven't got anything to worry about and so they worry about that fact. Well, God says you let the, the peace of God act as the judge in your heart, rule in your hearts to the which also ye are called. What? To the peace of God. You and I are called to the peace of God. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. How does the world give peace? When everything is rosy, when everything is going according to Hoyle, when everything is coming our way, then we begin to settle down and say, isn't this wonderful? But he says, that's not the kind of peace I'm giving you. I'm giving you the kind of peace that you have in the midst of the storm. And you will be able to recognize when you're off base when you can allow that peace of God to become the judge, the touchstone that tells you whether you're where you ought to be with God. You can come right back and say, Lord, I'm just going to praise you for this circumstance that seems so terrible. I'm going to thank you ahead of time for it because I know somehow you're going to get glory to it. To the which also ye are called in one body and what? Be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, being thankful, this is involved in it. Let the word of Christ dwell in, in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let me tell you something. If you don't have the word of God hidden away in your heart, you have nothing to draw on. Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The entrance of his word gives light. Remember I told you a long time ago, I all of a sudden realized that when circumstances come up, I have, for some reason, it's just that's the only way I can describe it. It's like a Rodex file in my, in my spirit or in my mind or someplace. When, when something happens that begins to disturb me, uh, it's just like ding, 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 ding. It goes around and up comes a verse. I'm not going to let this get to me because the word of God says thus and such. Now, if that Rodex file rolled around, I pulled it up and it was blank. Uh, then I'd be in trouble, see? And that's why the Word of God says we should hide the Word of God away in our heart. Why? So that the Word of God will help us to dwell richly in all wisdom. 
understanding the circumstances around us based upon what the Word of God has to say about it. So you don't make as much money one week as you think you're supposed to to pay your bills. My job is not my source. God is my source. He is able to make all grace abound toward me that I, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound on every good work. Now what if you don't have that verse? What if you don't know that truth? You see, it's because of ignorance of the word many times that Christians fall. It doesn't make any difference if it looks like it's not going to work. The word of God says he is faithful. He will make a way of escape so that I can bear it. I thank you, Father, ahead of time that even though it doesn't look like it, I give you praise and thanks that there is a way of escape because you promised it to me in your word. Satan, you're a liar. I'll not receive your lie. I don't know when it's coming. I don't know how it's coming, but I know it will come and it will come when God sees fit in due season to be here. And I thank you for that ahead of time. And whatsoever you do, in verse 17, in do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. And whatsoever things you do. You say, well, all I do is work in a kitchen. Or all I do is drive nails and cut wood. Or all I do is uh, work with people's dirty hair all day. And I, I, Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to do this as unto you. I can't tell you how thrilled I was when I learned that as a young Christian to when I went to work. Whatever I did in word or deed, the, the boss came around me one time and said, Hey, I've been watching you. What's, you're different from the rest of them. I said, What do you mean? He said, You haven't seen me. I've stood off in the corner where you didn't see me. And even when there's nobody around, you still work like you're crazy. And I said, Well, that's, what's wrong with that? He said, Nothing wrong with it, but most people don't do that. A lot of them try to slough off, and I haven't seen you doing that. I said, Well, that's because I'm not working for you. He said, what do you mean you're not working for me? I said, I'm a Christian, and what I'm trying to do, everything I do, I try to do it in a way that will be pleasing to the Lord. And when you're not here, he's still here, and I don't want to mess up. He walked away shaking his head. He couldn't comprehend that at all. And that's what it's saying. You see, then when I would work, I, I'd get to whistling and get to singing and get to praising the Lord while I was working because I wasn't working for them, and I wasn't working for that salary. I was working for the Lord, doing it for him, because I knew if I did it right, he'd see to it that the rest of the things were taken care of. You got that? That's a principle you got to learn. God wants us to be a praising people, a thankful people, because it's good, not for him, good for you. Third John, verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Follow after that which is good. Follow after that which is good. Good things for God's people. That's the thing we've been talking about. And the first one was that it's good to draw near to God. Now, we've completely covered that point. And now last, I think it was a week ago Wednesday night, wasn't it? We were talking about the second aspect of good things for God's people. And it was to give thanks or to give praise to God. Psalm 92, 1. Psalm 92, 1 says, It is a... Good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. Look at Psalm 147, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is humbly. Psalm 100. The whole psalm. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Thankful means be fearful but joyful in the presence of the Lord. The fear of the Lord being the beginning of the wisdom. And then to be joyful. In Colossians, the third chapter, the same theme carries right over into the New Testament. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye, be ye thankful. 
It goes on to say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to one another. You see, a lot of times when we're singing, we kind of look around like, well, we're just singing together. But the word says, and tonight, sometimes maybe you'll notice, I just, I just want to shut everything out and raise my hands and begin to sing because I'm singing to the Lord. The scripture says when you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it isn't just that we get together and have a singspiration just to bless one another, but we're to be singing praises to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Whatever you do or whatever you say, do it all as unto the Lord and thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to do it. Thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to say it. And it says that's good. It's good for people to give thanks to the Lord. Now, let me just reason something with you here that, that was interesting to me. I heard a lady, elderly lady one time that said this. Praise is the only thing we can give to God. The scripture tells us clearly that we can't give God possessions. I want you to understand that or you might write that down. What you can give to God and what you can't give to God. The first thing you can't give to God is you can't give your possessions to God. All you can do is return them to Him. Because you and I don't own anything. The Scripture tells us in Psalm 24, 1, The earth is what? The Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Now whatever is left over after that belongs to us. Okay? Psalm 50, beginning with verse 9. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he-goats out of thy foals, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Psalm 89, 11. David says, The heavens are thine, the earth is thine, as for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. So first of all, we can't return any possessions to God because, I mean, we can't give them to Him. We can only return them to Him because they're from Him in the first place. They belong to Him and He blesses us with them and gives them to us as possessions. So we can't give possessions to God. We can't give talents to God. Look at Daniel, the second chapter. This really spoke to my heart when I heard it. If we want to give anything to God, there's only the only thing we can give is praise. Daniel 2, verses 21 through 23. And he changeth the times and seasons, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. Here it is. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. Daniel is saying here, uh, let, me go, let me go on, I thank thee and praise thee, O God, God, uh, thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Daniel said, you're the only one that can give us wisdom, you're the only one that can give us talents, you're the only one that can give us skills. You see, uh, we can't give our bodies to the Lord, we can return them to the Lord. Present them back to the Lord, but because but our bodies say, what, don't you know that your bodies are not your own? They were bought. They belong to God. You can't return them. But we can give thanks to the Lord. 